You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. I don't know why you always have to judge me because I believe in science. Nacho Libre is uncomfortably accurate to the experience of believers and non-believers when it comes to talking to Christians about some of our questions, some of our deeply held beliefs and issues. And sometimes you just sort of feel like people are shoving those away or like sweeping them under the rug or trying to ignore them. Or maybe that people are afraid of questions as though if you, you ask certain kinds of questions, it means that you don't have faith. Or if they're afraid of questions because, of, you know, God might be a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. And if we, who knows, like if we peer behind the curtain, maybe we'll find out this is all a lie. And we as a church are not scared of questions. Uh, in fact, we're pretty comfortable with the fact that people have questions and we don't know the answers to all questions. But we do think that Christianity holds up to scrutiny, which isn't the same thing as saying you can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt to people. But we do think that there are answers even for really difficult, really skeptical, really cynical questions uh, that you may not like, but those answers exist. And so we thought we would have a series for you and for me, uh, for those of us who are skeptics and doubters and still want to believe. And we're going to call this series Reconstructing. And the reason we're calling it Reconstructing, honestly, or Constructing, I suppose, uh, for those of you who I know are still wondering if you can believe in Jesus. But we just know that there's some folks who've been in a place of kind of deconstructing some bad ideas, some unhelpful things that they learned maybe growing up in certain religious traditions or households, and they still really want to believe in Jesus. They're just sort of trying to make it through some intellectual barriers. And so we're going to have a series of sermons where we talk about some of those barriers that people have when it comes to believing in Jesus uh, in the hope, right, that we would allow people to doubt, but also that we would doubt our doubts. I think it's good to be an equal opportunity doubter. And so that's what we're going to do. We're not going to hit every single thing that you might really have questions about. We'll do a few, and then we might reprise this series sometime in the spring. Uh, but today, the first thing we're going to deal with is uh, this question. I have a friend who thinks that science disproves faith. I have a friend who thinks that science disproves faith. Would you turn me to a Bible, in a Bible? Uh, it's a Psalm 104. Psalm 104 It should be roughly in the middle of your Bible. And it's a long psalm, but it's a good one. We're going to read the whole thing. And it's a, a prayer and a poem. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Wrapped in light as with a garment, you stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they flee. At the sound of your thunder, they take flight. They rose up to the valleys and ran down to them. Rose up to the mountains and ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitations. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. 
You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the conies. You've made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. People go out to work to their labor until the evening. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you form to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know that y'all are wondering, why is the tea kettle boiling? That was the sound that you heard, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, we need to talk about science. What is science? When we're talking about things, we should have some definitions in mind. So some people in the time of memes and gifs will use the word science uh, badly, right? Like, my mom loves me, it's science. Or wash your hands, it's science. Or macaroni and cheese is delicious, it's science. And those may be true statements, but those are not science. Uh, that, those are facts, maybe, or things that science could help you to prove to be true, but that is not science. Another way to talk about science would be as like a group of disciplines, and then there are like subdisciplines. So physics, chemistry, biology, those are sciences, other things, not science. And I don't think that's a helpful way to do things. I think you actually get into trouble with that kind of definition. Because when I learned science, it was a way of looking at the world, a way of sort of exploring and discovering things. I studied science at the University of Arizona, uh, America's best university, Arizona's best university, bear down. And I studied biochemistry and physical chemistry and organic chemistry and molecular and cellular biology and, and all sorts of wonderful things like evolutionary biology. And I sat in labs and I thought about things and I, I loved it. And I had great professors who were geniuses. And when they would talk about what science really was, what they wanted to talk about was the scientific method. And the scientific method really is this. Uh, I know some things about the world, but I don't know everything. And I'm curious about this thing. And so now I, I make a guess about how to explore that thing. And we call that a hypothesis. And then there's an experiment where you test your guess. And then you look at the data and really try to evaluate whether or not you did a good experiment. And then in the end, you come to some kind of conclusion about your hypothesis, and then that feeds back, and you do this again and again and again and again. It becomes this sort of endless spiral of exploration and discovery. It's a really fun thing to do. 
And the truth is, if that is the definition of science, uh, not only is faith not opposed to science, science isn't opposed to faith, but faith would actually command us to do good science. Because the assumption that we don't know all that there is to know about the world and the, worth, the world is worth learning about, that it's not just because it's useful, but just because it's interesting, that's absolutely the world that the Bible points to, the world that this psalm is talking about. It's, it's a world in which even the, the winds and the fires and the flames can be messengers of God. If you study creation closely enough, you'll actually begin to realize that it's, it's speaking about the God of the universe. There's this old joke, actually, that theologians usually make. They talk about the two books of God, the one book being the Bible and the other being the book of creation. If you look around, if your eyes are open, you will see that God is on the move everywhere. And this psalmist sees God on the move everywhere. Even if, right, lions are feeding other lions, even if cattle are eating grass, really God is feeding them, like they're in some kind of great cosmic petting zoo. Even if rain is falling from the sky, even if water is moving through the waterways, God is the one doing the watering with some kind of watering can. This is the beauty of poetry, even as the psalmist talks about creation. And by the end of it, really what he's doing is just describing the world. And he seems to see that as a worship song. Just talking about creation and really thinking about it, really observing it, is a worship song. So in 31 to 35, he starts talking about, look, may my meditation, may my science be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord God, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I'm enjoying this. And you think about the worship song that he's created, and it's really just kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species, right? He's just listing things that happen in reality. Look, God, at the great amazing work of geology, how when the mountains rise up, they funnel the waters below, and those waters work their way into aquifers that bubble up into streams and that feed plants, which drink from the light of the sun that you've made with photosynthesis and feed all of these different kinds of animals so that they just sing a song back to you in praise. But when I sing a song back to you in praise, when the psalmist sings a song back to you in praise, it's because I understand something that they don't understand. My eyes are open and I'm aware that there is a God who is behind all of this great good work in the world. He sees that there is a place for everything in all of creation. At right? the tops of the mountains, the goats live there. Underneath the rocks, badgers and rabbits. In the tops of the trees, there are birds. There's a place for everything in creation, even human beings. But human beings, when we watch God's making, we start making. It's kind of a weird thing about science. So when, when God brings food forth from the ground, we find that we start making food from that food, right? Wild to, wine to make the heart glad. Oil to make the face shine bread to feed our souls and our bodies. We start finding ourselves in the place that other creatures usually roam, right? We make ships and because of the miracles of buoyancy, we find ourselves out in the waters where all these other creatures are and exist. And we get to see the great good creation that God has made. The psalmist knows himself to live in God's world and in God's universe. And he sings a praise song to the God of that universe. He sees it very much, right? He would see science very much as someone going to an art museum and looking at the paintings and spending careful time looking at every brush stroke of the paintings, at the, the way the colors shift and move, the way the shading happens, the, the large details and the small finite minutia of the painting. And the more you study that artwork, the more impressed you will be by the author of this creation. And the more you impressed you are, the more you honor the author of creation. Now, good theology will lead to good science. Good science will lead back into good theology. This is something that the church has known really for thousands of years. Uh, you wouldn't know it lately, and sometimes the modern scientific community likes to forget it, but for thousands of years, all science was done in the church. 
in cathedrals and in monasteries and city squares by nuns and by monks, by these sweet little friars. They would keep doing biochemistry in their abbeys. They would keep the process of beer making alive for centuries and praise God that they did. Wine makes the heart glad. Right? This clever science that slowly and steadily they perfected even as Europe was forgetting most of what it had ever known. They invented the concept of universities so that there could be places of higher learning because they thought, you know what, it is absolutely worth doing as much good work in the world as we can, learning as much as we possibly can about creation because that will just point us back to our creator. They kept alive the process of bookmaking and hand wrote and copied different manuscripts, even by people who did not know Jesus, even by non-Christians, because they wanted to keep learning alive from ancient universities and ancient sources. They made their way down to the Middle East and they learned actually from our Muslim neighbors about algebra and mathematics. They were remarkable people who cared deeply about learning. It was the church that invented the concept of hospitals because we wanted to study the human body, but also because we knew that God had called us called us to be people who heal the sick and take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. We got really good at it. And in our time, right, that's been taken over by corporations and by governments and by social programs. And it doesn't seem to work nearly as well as when the church was just doing good science and giving things away. If only the church would get back to what it knows how to do, study creation and praise God. Good theology leading to good science and good science leading to good theology. Maybe the most stunning example I know of this, in the 6th century, there was a, a monk in Syria named John Philopolis. And John Philopolis did what monks did in Syria in the 6th century. He spent a lot of time thinking about God and writing down things he thought about God. And he would sit in his cell, right, the room where monks sit, and he would watch his light move from one window to the next, and he would see it sparkle on the dust particles in the air, and he'd wonder what would happen if you could pull the dust particles out of the room. If actually you could strip everything out of the room, if, if light would move through the air without actually bouncing off of anything, or if it would still fill the room. Because light is invisible, but by it we see other things. Because light is this amazing, rich, interesting thing that can't be controlled and can't be contained. And the reason John wanted to spend so much time thinking about light was because the Bible regularly talks about light and how interesting it is and how good a metaphor it is for this God that we know because Jesus Christ is the light of the world and in him there is no darkness, right? In this psalm, he wraps himself with light as in a garment. And John Philopolis's work remained obscure for many, many years until a theologian a few years ago named Tom Torrance was reading his books, because that's what nerdy theologians do. We read other people's books. And he was reading his books, but he was talking to some of his colleagues in the university who were physicists, because Tom Torrance always loved physics, even though he was a theologian. And they were amazed, because the more they listened to what John Philopolis had written down, they realized that this sounded an awful lot like Max Planck, and an awful lot like Richard Feynman, an awful lot like Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. That in fact, John Philopolis in the sixth century had anticipated the theory of relativity and a half dozen other remarkable things that we have only recently begun to know about light in our world. Because he was a good theologian. And so he did good science. Good theology will lead to good science, good science will lead to good theology. And it's a tragic thing in our time that we have separated so many of the disciplines from each other, not just theology from science, but science from science. We live in this disconnected, disjointed world. And when we do things like that, we cheat ourselves. We cheat ourselves out of some of the richness of God's creation. The end of verse 24, right? When it says, God, how many are your works? How manifold, how great are your works? But the very end, it says, how many creatures there are on the earth? 
That word for creatures in Hebrew is actually the word for possessions. So what he's really saying is, God, how rich you are, how loaded you are. And the more I explore your creation, the more I get to experience this wealth. We cheat ourselves out of the wealth of God's creation when we are unwilling to listen to other disciplines. And the sciences often have this problem, right? It's a challenge, really, when chemists don't talk to physics and physics, uh, people who are, um, gosh, in, in the discipline of physics don't talk to biologists. It creates real issues in these things. In fact, it, it's one of the reasons that we, we get into real trouble in science when scientists don't talk to other disciplines and think about ethics, right? You know that science did some really ugly things during communism, some really ugly things during Nazi Germany. We know about eugenics and the really ugly way that science has actually been used in racist things over the years with social Darwinism and, and eugenics. Science actually needs some other disciplines to speak into it. And one of the challenges we have right in our time is we talk about global warming and climate change and these sorts of things. And the church goes, that's not our problem, that's a political problem, or that's, you know, that's somebody else's thing, or we get kind of wrapped up in a political conversation and we stop thinking about how God made the world and that we actually care about creation and we're called to be stewards of it. And when we stop doing that, we, we give up something that we are actually called to do, but we're giving up a seat at the table with the sciences. And actually, there are certain scientists who are advancing global warming and climate change at the same time other people are talking about how we need to get rid of global warming and climate change. It's science and technology that actually causes this problem, and it's science and technology that we say will solve the problem. And this disconnect is, is really problematic, and again, I think we keep cheating ourselves. There's a theologian named James Mays who talks about this and says, when we talk to one another about the world, our usual perspective is different. We view it in different identities that we assume, scientists, developer, economist, artist, sportsman, and others. We think of it in terms of the values and the purposes that belong to these identities. So we see it in fragments. We imagine ourselves autonomous, distinct from the world, different from its creatures, disposing of it and them, not accountable to any transcendent person. And we are learning slowly that we damage ourselves, that we live in alienation from that to which we belong and we threaten the future of life. But we can't break out of this perspective of our current identities unless we learn to speak to God about the world. And this can only be done in the language of praise. Until we begin to see creation as a unity, until we begin to see that it was made by someone, we will always struggle to articulate why we value creation, why it's a bad thing that things might be destroyed. If the world in which we live is only the product of random forces, if there is nothing beyond the world in which we live, then it's really difficult to talk about why this world matters. If there is no author, no artist behind it, it's hard to speak of this as a work of art, even though the sciences frequently talk about it as a work of art. They'll speak about the laws of nature, the laws of physics. They'll notice these strange kind of symmetries in the world in which we live. The fact that second-order differential equations often can describe the beauties and the symmetry of certain living creatures. In fact, when you look up in the stars, you can see a rhythm and a music in the stars. There were other times in the history of the world where the sciences and the theologians got together, and the astronomers would talk about how beautiful the universe was, and the theologians would say, praise God. The psalmist manages to hold these two things together and as a result has a better view of creation than you and I are able to do in our time because it's so fragmented. Let's stop cheating ourselves out of the gifts of science and let's try to convince our scientists' friends that we see what they have as a gift and they need to understand the giver. 
the challenge, of course, is that sometimes, right, we know where the disconnect comes from. Uh, it comes from, uh, back from the scientific method thing that I was talking about before. Right? What counts as truth? That's a real challenge. Because in the scientific community, sometimes the only thing that counts as truth is the things that can be measured during those experiments. Things that you can see, things that you can weigh, things that have mass or volume or force or acceleration, those sorts of things. That's all that counts as truth. And there are occasionally moments when you can chat with folks and they'll say, well, it's, it's really just that this world is all that there is. This material existence is, is all that there is. And you can call that metaphysical naturalism, or you can talk about that as pure materialism, or you could just say the Big Bang Theory or the theory of evolution. And the church often reacts against this because that's no longer science as a way of thinking. That's science as a kind of belief. That's science as a kind of faith. And it's not surprising that the church has a problem with that, that people instinctively react against that. Because even people who don't necessarily believe in God have a real problem with the idea that this world is all that there is, that the only things that measure are things that count. Because, well, I have loving relationships in my life. I have people I really care about in my life. I, I enjoy a sunset. I, I think that there's something more than just you know, pleasing notes when I play a melody on a piano. I think there's such a thing as music. I don't think this is a quirk of my biology or a trick of my brain or evolution. I think there's something more to this world than what I can see or touch with my hands. And so the church reacts really strongly against things that the scientific community is pretty comfortable with, like the theory of evolution. And I think we need to be careful with that. And I have no interest in convincing you to believe in the theory of evolution today. It's not important to me at all. There are young earth creationists, there are old earth creationists, there are creationism experts and intelligent design folks. And I think the only caution I would offer you is this. Be very careful about using science to try and disprove science. That won't work very well with people who actually understand science. And I would also say that you want to remember that this is your interpretation of the Bible. You may think it's right, but it's still an interpretation of the Bible. And so if somebody manages to poke holes in it or tear it apart, the only thing that happened is they've proved you wrong. They haven't necessarily proved the Bible wrong. They've just destroyed your interpretation of the Bible. But for those of you who are wondering how we can deal with the theory of evolution, how we can like the book of Genesis, it's worth paying attention to that Genesis, when it talks about God making the world in six days, doesn't seem to be operating under the rules of normal time. There are three days without the sun. What does a day mean when there is no sun, if it's not orbiting? Like what, what kind of time period is that? The book of Genesis, when it talks about creation, is not usually signaling to us, well, I am a science textbook. You should read me as though I'm a science textbook. Believe me when I tell you I have read science textbooks. I'm very grateful that the Bible is not a science textbook. It's much more interesting than that. In fact, a lot of the time the book of Genesis does what Psalm 104 does, which it signals to us that it's intended to be understood as poetry. So Psalm 104 is literally the longest account of creation outside of Genesis 1 and 2. So if you want to think about creation in the Bible, you're going to have to think about Psalm 104. And the way that Psalm 104 talks about the world, clearly in poetic language, it also assumes that God made the world. And not just that God like wound up the world and let it go and that the world works without God, but that God is continually creating in the world. That God is not leaving the world to its own devices, that God is still engaged in history, still engaged in creating and sustaining, that without God, if God at any point withdrew from the world, we would all return to dust and cease to exist. The Bible offers a more complicated picture at times than we might like to admit. 
about the way the world works and how God creates in the world. And so I think there's a level of humility that might be good before a book like Genesis or before Psalms like 104. That we might say, God is the one who's in control of creation, and I'm not sure I understand everything. I'm not sure I'm actually smart enough to explain exactly how it was created. And that's not to say that I can then dismiss all of science. It's just to say to my friends in the scientific community, look, I have a humility before the God of the universe. I'm not him. I don't know how he did it. I'm comfortable if you say that this looks like this is how it happened. That's fine. I just don't think you're answering the ultimate question. And I think you're trying to make me play by the rules of your game, where I have to explain everything. And the truth is, the purely secular scientist has to explain everything. I don't. The purely secular scientist has to explain why there's a math problem with the theory of evolution. There's a huge math problem. It happens way too fast if everything's just random. Why there's a math problem with the Bing Bang and carbon dating and geography happens way too fast. It just does. Now, that's not to say that, right, that we have a god of the gaps. It's just to say that there's a real problem if we're going to understand this world only on the terms that this is all that there is. And for those of us who say, look, I'm confident that, that God made the world, that actually that answers other questions like, why is there such a thing as good and evil in the world? Why are people so consistently concerned with being good people and avoiding evil? Why are we all angry at injustice when we see it, even if our definition of justice shifts? Why is it that I feel like life has meaning and purpose? Is that really just a trick of my biology? Just an accident of my hormones? And this is, I think, the problem that we get into because there are people like the new atheists who will say, all of human life can be explained by the sciences. It, all of human nature can be explained by the sciences. When there was uh, the new, gosh, when the guy who was appointed to the NIH in 2009 under Barack Obama, when he was appointed, one of the new atheists, a guy named Sam Harris, uh, the kind of people who write books like The God Delusion or say things like religion is atheism with wings, he published an op-ed about the NIH director. He put him on blast. He was trying to destroy him in the New York Times. He said, as someone who believes that our understanding of human nature can be derived from neuroscience, psychology, cognitive science, behavioral economics, among others. I'm troubled by Dr. Collins' line of thinking. Must we really entrust the future of biomedical research in the United States to a man who sincerely believes that a scientific understanding of human nature is impossible? And that is a sentiment that we hear sometimes from folks who would say that they're, they're an atheist or they don't really believe in Jesus. This strange sentence that all of human behavior can be explained by the sciences, that there is no world beyond this world. And the person he's talking about, Dr. Francis Collins, is a scientist and a good one. He's somebody who has a PhD in quantum chemistry. He got a medical degree from North Carolina after the PhD. He has made many contributions to both medicine and the sciences. He's really won award after award after award. He's done amazing work at the NIH in the last 11 years. But the reason Sam Harris has a problem with him is he became a Christian. That's the problem. Really, it has more to do with bigotry and prejudice than it does with the fact that Francis Collins is a bad scientist. Francis Collins is an amazing scientist, honestly. And what he would say is long after his medical degree, not because he grew up in a Christian family, because he didn't, but just on the evidence, just because of the scientific method, he, he was starting to think about those big human questions. Does life have meaning and purpose? Is there a God? Does my life matter? What happens after death? 
And he started really thinking about those questions and really investigating them and coming up with a guess and then really exploring it and coming to conclusion and, and repeating the process again and again. He tried all the religions of the world and he found that Christianity just made sense to him. He's a deeply committed Christian. And he would say in the 41 years that I have been a Christian, I have never seen anything in my science that would make me believe the scriptures are untrue. And I say that as somebody who is deeply committed to the scriptures and someone who's so committed to scientific research that unless you prove it to me, I will not believe your data. It's tragic, he says, that in our time in schools, we're teaching children that you have to pick one or the other when these two things really work very well together. And this kind of leads us back to the original question, right? Why is the tea kettle boiling? Well, one answer, is that a series of gases are combusting at a particular rate in a particular place called a power plant, right? That, that we're, we're burning fossil fuels and those are pumping pistons and turning turbines and generating electricity. This is also happening hydrologically at dams at very far distances that all of this power is being funneled through a series of transformers over a series of wires, basically according to Coulomb's law and the Faraday principle to make sure that the, the amplitude and the voltage are balanced so that we don't lose a variety of different energies through the wires that come to our houses. When they come to our houses, the modulation goes back and so suddenly we have 110 volts coming through this particular outlet that goes to this particular device, which again uses Coulomb's law and the Faraday principle and a variety of other different mechanics and magnetism basically to generate joule energy, and that joule energy begins to excite the particles within this thing, the hydrogen and the oxygen, and that reaches 100 degrees Celsius and a particular degree Fahrenheit. According to PV equals NRT, and we're using pressure and temperature and volume, and all these things to create water that boils. And another answer is that I wanted tea. Now, the first answer is really important because otherwise I don't get tea. But the second answer is really important because otherwise who cares about the first answer? This is the problem for the sciences. Without some answer of the question, does life matter? Does science matter? Is creation important? It becomes almost unnecessary to bother to study the sciences. If my brain is explicable through a series of natural processes, then why would I care about studying those processes? Who cares about the world? It's not interesting, it just is. But if this world belongs to someone great who's actually got a purpose and a plan for it, well, then it's absolutely worth studying. And so we can't lose sight of the purpose and the plan. And we also can't imagine that just because I want tea, right, that I don't have to bother thinking about these other things. Science and faith work together at their best. They actually produce delicious results. Again, wine that makes the heart glad, oil that makes the face shine, bread that feeds our souls and our bodies. And that's what the psalmist would point us to, right? That, that we actually are able to, to meditate on the God of the universe, to talk about him and praise his glory. And that one of the best ways to do that is by exploring his creation. So the answer to the question, does science disprove faith? Only if you're gonna come with a really narrow understanding of science, only if you're gonna to start to turn science into a kind of faith, into a statement about why things are the way that they are, and, and really that there's no such thing as meaning and purpose in the world, and, and this is all that there is. But if science really is just a way of thinking and approaching the world, there are many great scientists who continue to become Christians as a result of doing great science. And there are many Christians who suddenly see the value of this great science because they realize this is the great good world that God has made. And so good science will produce good theology, good theology will produce good science, and that, my friends, is excellent news for us today. Would you pray with me?